Amen. Well, thank you, Kevin, and everyone else who's been a part of this service so far this morning. Amazing to see all that's happening and grateful to you for being here. For those listening online later, thank you for doing that. I'm grateful to have you doing that. You found us here in part four of a nine-part series we're calling The Lost Art of Friendship. And what we're trying to do in this series is go back in time to when the church, the early church, began to be formed and just began to be developed as a little infant growing up in a very hostile environment in the Roman world. And in that space, is not only was there political and social and economic pressure from the outside, from the Roman world, there was also internal pressure from those in various religious backgrounds. The Jews were used to doing things in the Jewish way, and the Gentiles, who now all of a sudden have access to the same Heavenly Father that the Jews have access to as well, have to figure out how do we internally love one another as a new thing called the church. Not only how do we handle the external pressure, but internally, what does it look like to be this new, brand new thing called the church? And in that space, throughout the New Testament, there's one Greek word called alelos, which is simply translated in our English vocabulary, one another. And over and over and over again, dozens and dozens of times, the word one another is used in the New Testament. And it, to us, in this time period in history, is an invitation to see how the earliest people who were trying to figure out how to be the church were to treat one another internally. What it meant to be friends in a spiritual way, in a biblical way, in a godly way, not just in terms of acquaintance or intimacy of knowing one another in any other way, but actually what does it mean uniquely to be a Christian friend in the church. And so for nine weeks, we're in this thing called the lost art of friendship because we want to go back to that season of time when the church was just beginning to develop and learn from these people who wrote these letters to the early church. This is how the one another's should be handled. This is how we should, even today, church, treat one another and learn from those who have gone before. And so we have already covered in this series several things, and they've all been good so far. They've all been things that have been great. We've talked about how to love one another. We've talked about doing good to one another. We talked about bearing one another's burdens last week. Today, though, we're going to talk about what we shouldn't do. And this is the first time we're diverting from what we should to what we shouldn't. And we want, I want to jump into it right away and try to explain why it matters uh, this morning, because there's actually way more that I can say about this than I'm going to be able to say in just the two hours that I have with you here this morning. Just kidding, uh, mostly. Uh, those who are new and visiting, it, it really won't take that long probably. Okay. Um, we are going to talk about this concept this morning, and that is this. Paul writes a letter to the people in Rome, and he says to, to the church, not just to the Romans, but to the church, stop judging one another. And that, there's our, our Greek word, alelos, the one another. Stop judging one another. And this morning, I want to talk for the time that we have here about this concept of judgment and what it means and why it really matters and why Paul would write, stop judging one another to the church inside. And here's why I think it matters. There's five reasons why I think it matters that we talk about this. And the first reason is this, that we almost can't help it. We almost can't help judging one another. Isn't that true? Like this is why, um, boy, back in the day, there was a, a commercial that was on TV from Head & Shoulders Shampoo, right? I don't pay attention to those anymore, by the way. But it, they were on, and their little byline was, you never get a second chance to make a first impression, right? You know that. Why? Because you're going to be judged the first time someone sees you. You know that. You better not have dandruff, okay? We almost can't help judging. We almost can't help it. The second reason I think it's important is this, that we are confused by it. What does it actually mean to judge or not judge? So the truth is, there are times when it is right and good to judge. In fact, I don't want to live in a society where there is no judgment, neither do you. In fact, I want you to judge my words this morning. 
I want you to evaluate. I say this regularly. I want you to evaluate. I want you to listen and process. I want you to measure. I want you to be the quote-unquote judge. Is what I say true? Is it helpful? Is it right? You shouldn't just take what you hear with, with no thoughtful thinking, and you don't. You're evaluating everything that I'm saying, and rightly so. You're judging me. Stop it. <laughs> As a parent, you have a two-year-old and your four-year-old sibling bops him on the head to get the toy. What are you going to do? You're going to act as judge in that moment, and you should. Because it would be wrong to raise children in a space where there is no judgment on their behavior. You have to make a decision. That was wrong. You're judging that moment, and you're offering a corrective for the future. You should judge that. We none of us want to live in a world where the bank robbers get away with all the money and have no judgment brought on them for what they do. We need to live in a lawful society which requires judgment. Therefore, we're confused. What does this mean not to judge one another? Because we do it all the time. We need it, but sometimes we think it's bad. So we're confused. I want to try to bring some clarity. Thirdly, I think, is this. There's actually two conversations. And this is very important. I picked this up particularly this week as I posted something on Facebook that we're going to get into a little bit later on. And here's what I learned, that there are people who are part of the broader majority of, I'm going to call it the church, and then there are people who are kind of in the minority who feel like they have been judged. The people in the church, the conversation on my Facebook wall was a little bit more um, philosophical and ideological. The people who private messaged me, who have been, in their words, judged by the church, are speaking at a whole nother level. And neither the two shall meet. There's at least two conversations, almost the perpetrator and victim concept. And the perpetrators of judgment often do not see where we judge because we don't think we're doing it. But the victims, if they had an opportunity to speak, would help us see in a fresh way, mm, there may be something here for us to learn. So there's at least two conversations, and we want to kind of bring that to light here, okay? Fourthly is this. People walk away from faith because of this issue of the church judging them, rightly or wrongly, whether you think it's fair or not fair, but people's stories consistently line up with this. You probably know people like this who said, I can't handle anymore. I've been judged. My mom's been judged. My dad, we did this, we did that, and the church kicked us out, whatever, and boom, we just kind of walk from it because of the issue of judgment. And finally, the fifth reason I think it's important is this. It strips your courage when you're afraid of judgment. When you're afraid of what people around you will think, when you're afraid to be a leader because you think people will criticize you, when you're afraid to step into things that are bigger than you think you can do, fear of judgment of other people strips you of the courage that I think God has wired into you. And if we don't talk about it, we will never get on top of it. And so this can be an entire series. We're going to try to mash this into just a little bit of time this morning. This is why I think it's all fire important to talk about the issue of judgment in the church. Okay, fair enough. What are you going to say? You're sitting here. Fair enough. There we go. So with that being said, I want to do a couple of things with you. I want to, first of all, try to define judgment for you. I want to tell you a couple of stories that I learned this week from real people, real human beings, who are my friends, actually. Um, I do have a couple of those. And, um, and then go into an ancient letter written by Paul to the church in Rome and just try to drive home some application points before we're done um, here today. So let me try to bring clarity, first of all, to the definition of judgment. When I talk about judgment, here's what I mean by judgment. That judgment happens when I use my standards to declare you guilty and consequently worthy of punishment. When I'm using the definition of judgment, the word judgment here this morning, this is the narrowest definition I can get that I think lines up with what Paul is going to say in the letter that he wrote to the, book, uh, to the people in Rome. Judgment happens when I use my standards to declare you guilty. As a parent of a two- or four-year-old, sometimes that's right. Okay? It's my standard, if you will, in this home that you don't eat 
or drink, let's say, in your bedroom because we don't want the ants to get in there. That's not from Jesus, okay? That's not a spiritual issue, but that's just our standards in this home, and it's right to offer that to a child. But when it comes to -to peer-to-peer interaction, things get different and wonky when we get peer-to-peer. When I use my standards to judge you and declare you guilty, and consequently, I give myself permission to punish you. Punishment nowadays in adult peer-to-peer circles often um, involves simply social punishment, such as um, I'm going to give myself permission to be okay not to talk to you as much because you do things that according to my standards aren't appropriate. You're wearing clothing that I wouldn't wear in church. So afterwards, I might just kind of briefly say hi to you, but I'm going to kind of draw back a little bit, kind of step aside. You've made decisions in your relationships or maybe your marriage that I wouldn't make. You're consuming things that maybe I wouldn't consume. You're writing things that I wouldn't write. You listen to stuff, I know you do, because you post it on social media that I wouldn't. And therefore, I'm going to, quote-unquote, punish you by withdrawing a little bit. I might even, in a weak moment, I might even gossip about you a little bit. But it'll kind of be worth it because you deserve punishment. Because you're guilty. Because you violated my standard. See how this works. This is the judgment. The judgment happens whenever I use my standards to declare you guilty, and it gives me a subtle permission then to punish you. By the way, you feel that, and you'll know that, ultimately. It doesn't take long to feel that. And so what I want to do this morning is, is tell you a couple stories. Uh, this, this week, I posted on Facebook, and you may have felt the earth tremble when I did that, but here's what I posted. I said, so I'm giving a talk uh, Sunday morning about the idea of not judging one another. A dicey topic to discuss on Facebook, but for my Facebook friends of all stripes, some in the church, some out, some on the fence, what are your experiences with the church being a place of judgment versus a place of non-judgment? If it's easier to private message me, feel free. Thanks for keeping it real and civil. Okay? So if you want those kind of conversations, you can follow me on Facebook or friend me or whatever we do on Facebook. Um, but there you go. So here's some of the responses I got. And by the way, I got two different kinds of responses um, Again, on my wall, you can go to my wall and see what people wrote and my interactions with that, and it was good. Um, But the private message people had a totally different tone and a totally different response, and I got permission from two of the friends who responded in private message to share their story without their names. Uh, So I'm not, you know, whatever, I'm not uh, betraying any confidence here. I'm going to change the names of the people and some of the details of their story to keep them from... um, you knowing who they are, though many of you would probably know who they are if I were to tell you their real names and stories. Uh, the first lady, I want to just read to you her story. Her name's, I'm going to call her Kathy. Again, uh, not her real name. She said, hi, I wanted to respond to your post about judging but felt more comfortable here. I hope it's okay if I comment. I've had experiences in my church that have been extremely judging and to the point that it has pushed me away from church. I've been, quote unquote, one of those homeless people. It was too much for me to work through, and I found it better to discontinue with my work and hope that those who judge will change their perspectives if enough good work is done that they can see or watch. So I asked for more clarity when she sent that to me. I said, can you help me understand more of your story? So she said, I was in an abusive relationship for about 15 years. It ended about 15 years ago. And I had to leave or wind up getting seriously hurt or even worse. So I had to leave in the middle of the day, and while I had planned, I had no ability to pack or anything. So I wound up being homeless for about four months. I got an apartment, got my life back together, and I met my now husband. But when I shared that story at my church, at their request, I was treated very differently after sharing it. And the negativity about others like me, that is those who were homeless, 
therefore lazy, therefore unspiritual, therefore not quite like the rest of us. The negativity about others like me just continued. And so I walked away from the church. And then she finishes with an interesting line. She said, the pastor there is a good friend of mine, and we have talked about this over the years, and he is angered by this behavior as well. But even though she has a relationship with the pastor, the church relationship is broken. Another friend, I'm going to call her Barb, said this, So I saw your Facebook message about the church and judgment. I carry a lot of scars with me in this area. When my family moved here, I was five. I had spent my life to that point going to a local church for Sunday school and preschool. My family was ingrained in the church, and even at five, I felt I knew God, and I felt loved by him, and I felt sure that he wanted me to spread warmth and kindness. So it was odd when the folks at certain churches started calling my family derogatory names. They called our house and left messages that my father was being nominated for some fake award they made up and snickered at us. They called us names in restaurants and grocery stores. I knew we didn't belong in Lancaster County, at least not in our small town, from a very young age. People were quick to tell me, but it didn't hurt me to the core until high school. I fell in love with a boy from a local church, and he fell in love with me, as much as 16-year-olds can be in love. But when his parents got involved, that's when he started telling me I needed to be saved and I was going to hell. He and his family and their church friends called my parents heathens. Everything was a test of my Christianity. I liked the wrong TV shows. I listened to the wrong music. I valued the wrong things. I couldn't understand because I was a Christian, and I loved God, and there was, they were acting as if I was evil. They brought me to their church, and I was struck as the overwhelming theme of us versus them-isms. And as a teenager, I was struck by the immaturity of a crowd of people in a place that they called God's house, shaking their head in disapproval of fellow humans fellow Christians. They took the joy they took in talking about their salvation over others. I was young and in love and brokenhearted, and suddenly all the derogatory names uttered in the grocery store started to sit like weights on my shoulders. I noticed the girlfriends whose parents didn't like me and didn't trust me, and I started to distrust the church, all churches, completely. I never felt God at the church where that boyfriend took me. I felt judgment and emptiness and some sort of desperate longing for guaranteed salvation. I stayed away from organized religion for a long time after leaving Leicester County when I was 18. I never wanted to accidentally fall into something that would make me treat people the way I'd been treated. I was a good kid, an innocent kid, and yet these people made me think that God hated me and I rebelled with all my might against them and God because of it. And it led me into a really bad place. I say this because I want you to understand this type of Christian bullying leads to years and years of devastating consequences. For me, bad relationships, she wrote. I did end up finding my way back to God at another church and had profound religious experiences in the ensuing years. God was kind and good and alive in all these places, and I finally realized that I'd been right all along. And still just two years ago, I attended a funeral for a friend. The pastor and congregants from that church that I went to with my 16-year-old boyfriend were leading the service. I ignored the glares I got when I walked in because the older folks still hold tight to my standing with the names that they called us. And was shocked when at this funeral the pastor went into that familiar string of us versus themisms. I was mad and sad, sad for all those congregants and sad for Jesus because I'm sure he wouldn't speak that way. So I steer clear of many churches. I'm terrified of my kids being bullied like me. I see it on my Facebook feed, memes that bully in the name of God. It's sad. It's heartbreaking. And I still scratch at the scabs from all those wounds and reopen them way too often. 
She finally says this in conclusion, I really hope you lead a congregation that wouldn't do this to another child. I'm a pretty mild person, but there's a part of me that still burns in anger, that wants to stand up for my little girl self. And there's also a part of me that so badly wants to be accepted. I'm afraid it's made me a bit afraid of you. And I do apologize for that. It's amazing. You think judgment in the church is a problem? When I read that, I thought, wow. Wow. If those who've experienced this kind of judgment had a chance to speak, how would we react? And I would bet most of us would react the way I did to her. With just, uh, I'm so sorry. I am so sorry that you have encountered this kind of thing that has been called Christianity. I am so sorry for you. I am so sorry that this has impacted you the way it has because it is not the way the church should be. And so those who have been victims are afraid to speak on my wall And they're afraid to speak to the church because they're afraid of the power of judgment that comes. Not from you individually, but from the collective church. And whether we like it or not, there is a guilt by association, which makes the work even harder for us to do. In order to get around this and handle this, This is why I want to go back in time, because this issue is not unique to 2018. It is not unique to the political climate that we are in now. It is not unique to the generation that is living now. It is not unique to social media. It is not unique to this lady's history. This is a problem that has been going on for generations. And so I want to take you to where Paul wrote to an early church that was trying to figure out how do we handle this very issue of judgment. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Romans. And if you don't have a Bible on you, there's a Bible in the pew near you. That's our gift to you if you don't own one. But Romans is um, the the sixth book in the New Testament, right? Two-thirds of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. So it's fairly easy to find. But Romans chapter 14 is where I want to take you. And Paul is writing, just so you know, to a a group of people um, who really were trying to figure out how the church should operate, who are coming from two completely different vantage points. Um, the Jews on the one hand, who were, um, the, the Jews who were, uh, had a, a legalistic background, obeyed the law no matter what, and the Gentiles who were just trying to figure out what does this mean to get into the church on the whole. And so Paul writes in Romans 14, and we're going to read verses 1 to 22 this morning, but I'm going to start with verses 1 uh, through 5 here, 1 through 4, excuse me. I'm reading from the New International Version. Here's what he says. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Okay, now, what's happening here? First of all, we have someone who eats only vegetables. That bothers me. 
<laughs> They're going to sit in this stool over here, okay? This is our vegetable guy over here. And so we have a veggie guy over here, and over here we have the people who enjoy, you know, a little bit of, uh, you know, a little bit of Texas Roadhouse kind of food, all right? They, they like their... Their steak done medium well, medium. I mean, they're, they're okay with the meat, okay? So we have two people, one veggie guy over here, we have meat guy over here, and they have to figure out how to be in the church because veggie guy doesn't eat vegetables because he's a vegetarian. He eats vegetables because he thinks that's what God wants him to do. He doesn't eat veggies because he loves veggies over meat. In fact, he doesn't mind bacon if he could get it, but he's afraid to do it because his grandfather and his grandfather's grandfather and his grandfather's grandfather's grandfather always told him that if you eat meat, that is disobedient to God. And if you want to be spiritual, you will do the right things in order to connect to God. And so veggie guy eats only veggies for that reason, primarily almost alone. He is afraid that even if he were to find a clean, quote-unquote, clean food to eat that would be a meat, that there could be something in that system that would be wrong and that he would somehow violate a pure relationship with God. So veggie guy eats veggies because he thinks, by, being, by acting in this way, I am being the most spiritual. Over here is meat guy. He likes bacon. He doesn't have a problem with it. And all of a sudden, the bacon guy, the meat guy, the steak guy has to go to church with the veggie guy, and they have a, a meal, a fellowship meal after church. And what do you do? If you're sitting next to the veggie guy, do you cut open your whatever, you know, your, let's say there's tater tot casserole, hey, right? And there's a little hamburger in there, you know? Do you eat that next to the veggie guy or do you not? Like, is that appropriate or is that being rude and insensitive? How do you handle things like that? And so Paul is writing to the Jews who were eating only certain things because of religious regulations and Gentiles who felt great freedoms because, frankly, they didn't have the background. They didn't have a conscience about it. Their grandparents never said, you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that. They just didn't have that. And now all of a sudden, both of them have been invited, both of them have been invited into this space where this space is simply come to faith in Jesus Christ. Believe in him. The end. Not believe in him and. Like faith and salvation, all of a sudden, after the cross, it's very clear. Like you can be saved not by the basis of what you do or what you don't do, but you are saved because of Jesus. And so food is secondary, Jesus is primary. And so all of a sudden, how do these people, veggie guy, meat guy, come together? And this is what, why Paul writes what he writes. He said, listen, some of you are just eating vegetables. I don't know why, and some of you aren't. You know. So here's what we should do. Be careful what you do. And he goes, he goes on. He says in verse 5, one man considers one day more sacred than another. This is back to veggie guy again. Okay, veggie guy has certain days that are sacred. Another man considers every day alike, meat guy over here. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special, in other words, the feast days, the sacrificial days of the Old Testament nation of Israel, vegetable, Jews, law, that's where, where Paul's going there. He who regards one day as special should do so to the Lord. He who eats meat, you know, eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God, and he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whatever we, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. And what he's saying is, you aren't the boss of me. That's <laughs> what he's saying. You aren't the boss of me, and, and we're not the boss of each other. Like We don't have the right as meat guy to say, you know what, you should follow my standards. Nor veggie guy has the right anymore, or ever, really truthfully, to say to meat guy, you need to follow my standards. Because what Paul is saying is, you live, you don't live to one another. Your direct report is God. Your direct report is not your peer in the faith. 
And how, how weird would it be in your organization, your place of work, in your school, if all of a sudden you were accountable to your, your peers in your classroom instead of your teacher? If you were accountable to the people right next to you in the org chart instead of the person above you? That would just be weird. And sometimes you have people in the office like that, right, who pretend to be the boss even though they're not? Like who, and if you don't know who that is, maybe it's you, I don't know. But no one loves that kind of person because they're messing up the org chart. You don't report to your peers, you report to the person above you. And Paul is trying to be clear. Veggie guy, you are not in charge of meat guy. Meat guy, you are not in charge of veggie guy. We come to the cross together and we have a direct report. Whether you live, whether you celebrate these special days and you eat only veggies, do that. Like Do that, enjoy that, but do it to the Lord. Don't do it in response to your meat friend, meat guy, like if you do that, do that to the Lord and, and do that to him. Like we are not responsible to one another in that way. And that's what he's saying in this, in this space. And he goes on. He goes on. He says in verse 9, For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me and every tongue will confess to God. And so each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Veggie man and special day observer man over here, I know about him. And you may know about him. I share history with this guy over here. And here's the irony in religious circles of people who have certain traditions and heritages and family expectations. For me, it's not vegetables, right? Like it wasn't meat for you, it unlikely is that. For me, it was about music that I listened to. It, it was about dress and what you wear. It was about how regular you are in attendance to various religious events, spiritual Christian experiences. Whatever the stuff is goes here into this space, and then you have people over here who come from entirely different backgrounds who simply don't have the conscience and background and history that you do over here. And here's the, the irony. Okay, here's the irony of this. These people in the, the veggie seat over here, these people, Paul calls weak. The powerful irony is that the weak think that they are strong. Paul identifies the veggie person as the one of weak faith. That's his language. And I'm just trying to understand it. it they're not the strong. In other words, what happens here is the people he calls weak, the reason they are weak is because they're saying they're living not just by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're living in their relationship with God, not only with faith, but also with a mix of works. And that doesn't strengthen faith, it weakens it. Does that make sense? They're combining, I believe in the cross, I believe in Jesus, but I also believe that you should always wear a suit to church. You should, you should always dress up. Hey, I, I also believe that you should never smoke, right? Like, anyone who smokes, that has to be against the law somewhere in the Bible, and anyone who smokes probably is never going to heaven. Like, I believe that, right? And I believe there's probably certain, I would guess, like, movie ratings that the MPAA came out with that Christians, I mean, good Christians, should never watch. 
I believe you should probably read these books to raise your kids, and I believe you should only listen to this music, and maybe, maybe volume of music matters too. Maybe God cares about how loud things are. Maybe he cares about how quiet they are. And what, what Paul is saying is this stuff that we add on doesn't actually make our faith stronger. It actually makes it weaker. And he calls these people, the bacon lovers, the meat people, the people who come with almost no conscience, he calls it strong. What an irony. Why? Because their faith is strong in the simple reality that Jesus saved me. That's it. Jesus saved me. Therefore, I'm free. Like, I'm not free to be an idiot. I'm not free to be a fool. I'm not free to be a jerk. I still need to love one another, do good to one another, bear one another's burdens. And in that, I'm going to be careful how I express my freedom when I'm in the fellowship meal and I have tater tot casserole and the guy next to me eats only veggies. I'm going to carefully figure out how to do that. But I still can live in my freedoms because... I have strong faith that the gospel, that Jesus Christ alone saves me. And so I am not going to make secondary issues about food, about regulations, primary. I am not going to use my standards to judge you. You will not be guilty and therefore deserving of punishment because you violated my standards. That is a position of strength. And the most religious people among us, myself included, have gotten that backwards. This looks pretty strong. Wow. Look how committed they are. Look how discerning they are. Look how gripped they are by deeds and works and the struggle it is to accept the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a weak faith. It's not my words, it's Paul's. He goes on, verse 13, part A. He says, therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. In light of all this, both you weak and strong, stop. Don't judge our vegetable friend because he's not eating vegetables. In your freedom, love well. Vegetable friends, keep eating veggies if you'd like. But come on, don't make it second, don't make it primary. Don't judge those who don't. Don't use your standards. And he goes on in the next several verses to give us points of application. I'm going to identify three principles and then land the plane here in just a couple minutes. First principle of application I'm going to say is this. Principle number one, make up your mind not to make it about you, but about God. And look at verses 13b to verse uh, 18. Instead, he says, like, instead of doing this, therefore stop passing judgment. This is what you're to do, the last part of verse 13. Instead, make up your mind that is determined, decide, make a point in time, put a flag down, this is what I'm going to do, decide, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I'm fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. You're allowed to eat bacon. You're allowed to go to the roadhouse, right? But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, then you're no longer acting in love, right? Do not, by your eating, destroy your brother for whom Christ has died. Do not allow what you consider to be good to be spoken of as evil. And then he says this, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
The kingdom of God is not about these secondary things. It isn't about what we, oh, how far can we go in our freedom or how much can we limit people? It isn't about that. That's all secondary. This is just how we are going to love one another. This is how we treat one another. And in that, stop judging. Keep the central thing central. Don't make it about your standards, but about God's. Make up your mind not to make it about you, not to make it about your preferences, but about God. There's a second principle that's very powerful. Verse 19. There Paul writes, he said, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. And with that, here's my words, what he's saying. Make every effort to build up and not tear down. Make every effort to build up and not tear down. Keep in mind, as he says there, make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. So as I'm sitting here about to eat, what would be the most loving thing for me to do to my veggie neighbor whom I love? I have the freedom to eat my tater tot casserole with hamburger helper mixed in there. I have the freedom to do that. But because I love you, I may pass. And, and I just want to eat veggies, but oh man, he's eating that right in front of me. And because he is, I am not going to complain about him on social media. I am not going to call somebody and complain because I'm going to make up my mind that my speech is about peace and mutual edification. I'm going to build up rather than tear down. The reality is, if we insist on our preferences, we risk destroying the kingdom of God. This is what happened to Barb, the second story I read to you. If we insist on our preferences, we risk destroying the kingdom of God. Her story went on for years which she's walked from the church, still has walked from the church. Now, it was friendly, caring, outgoing, loving, warm, wonderful person. But in terms of wanting to be involved in the church, I cannot blame her in the least for the feeling. Why? Because when you make, and when I make, and when we make our preferences first, we destroy the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We destroy it. It is not strong faith, it's weak. Then he goes on in verse 22, and this is a very powerful verse. He says, so whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. (laughs) Principle number three, keep your preferences yours, generally. Keep your preferences yours. In other words, there are going to be things that you wish were different about the way that Whatever, church is done. People are connecting. Your family is engaging. The people that are over here or the people that are over here are acting. I mean, we're on both sides. Every one of us is on both sides depending on our relationships. And he's basically saying, think about your preferences first. Think about, is this really, is this really about me or is this really about God? And then he makes a statement at the end of verse 22. He says, blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. What does he mean by that? To me, one of the most powerful verses in this whole section. What he's saying is, and you know people like this who, you know when you go over to their house, you have to act a certain way. When you go into their presence, you're not going to use certain words you'd use in other places. Because you know that they won't approve of you. And what he's saying is, blessed are you when you don't have a long list of things that people need to do to gain your approval, because whatever is on your list condemns you, doesn't approve you. In other words, in order for you to be good with me, you have to speak this way, listen this way, watch only this, engage this way. 
And I have a list of things. And he said, blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. <laughs> in other words, that there is an incredible wideness in the grace and the mercy that we show. One of my favorite questions to ask around this topic is simply this. <clears throat> Excuse me, this is this. How do you think those far from God felt when Jesus walked into the room? When Jesus walked the planet and he walked into the spaces that only sinners or tax collectors inhabited, how do you think people who were far from God felt when he walked into the room? The, the reality is we don't have to guess at the answer to this question. We can just read the New Testament. We can just read the letters. We can just read the Gospels. We don't have to guess. We can just read it. And what you will see and what I will see over and over and over and over and over again is that the people who are furthest from religion, the people who are furthest from God, actually were closest to Jesus. And here's the most powerful principle for me. That Jesus, Jesus was more willing to condemn himself to the cross than to condemn you for your sin. Jesus was more willing to condemn himself to hang on that cross for you and for me than he was ever willing to point a finger at you or me and condemn you for what you have done. That is not his way. And this is why Paul writes the church, Christians, followers of Jesus, do not judge one another. God is our direct report. The church is in the business of figuring out how to love, do good, bear one another, help, teach, instruct. God has died for us through his son, Jesus Christ, who is more willing to condemn himself to death than you or me, for our sin. That is a powerful, powerful concept. That is why we, as a church, celebrate, remember, this thing that we're about to participate in called communion. About six times a year, we come together to remember what Jesus did on the cross. And this morning in particular, as the communion ushers and worship team, you guys can come on forward right now, um, so we have people coming forward to get ready to help prepare and serve communion. What we do here is we serve the bread and the, the cup together, and we wait and drink together and eat together until we're all ready. But in this moment, here's what I want for you, okay? I want for you, as you take the bread this morning, as you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, by the way, we invite you to participate in communion. You don't have to be part of this church. Um, if you call yourself a Christian, uh, come on, let's, let's do this thing together, all right? But as you eat the bread and drink the cup, I want you to think about the reality that Jesus condemned himself before he condemned me. He put himself on that cross. And therefore, God, help me. Because I can almost not help but judge the people around me. Help me to see the people around me through your eyes. 